This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the US-China Trade War podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the political economy desk here at the South China Morning Post. It's Friday, October 23rd. We're a week out from the US election and possibly a fortnight from knowing who's going to be the next Director General of the World Trade Organization. So I'm going to keep this intro very brief this week because we have a bumper edition of the podcast for you. First, we will as ever frisk this week's news with John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, including a more decorous presidential debate than most people were expecting, China's resurgent economy in the week that third quarter GDP was announced, and what we should read into Xi Jinping's invocation of the spirit of Korea 70 years after China joined the Korean War. In part two, I'll be joined by Stephen Olson, a research fellow at the Heinrich Foundation and a former US trade negotiator, to get his take on the debate, the lack of focus on China or on trade, but what might be in store for US-China trade relations post-election. And finally, we'll bring you the latest in our series of interviews with the WTO Director General candidates, this time with the Nigerian frontrunner Ngozi Okonja-Iweala. That's part three of the show. Stay tuned for more on that. But first, let's hear what Donald Trump and Joe Biden had to say about China at this morning's debate. On China policy, though, what specifically are you going to do? What specifically are you going to do to make China pay? You've said you're going First to make all, them pay. First of all, China is paying. They're paying billions and billions of dollars. I just gave $28 billion. New sanctions? I just gave $28 billion to our farmers. Taxpayers' money. It's what? Taxpayers' money. Income no, no, from yeah, China. you know the taxpayers? It's called China. China paid $28 billion, and you know what they did to pay it, Joe? They devalued their currency, and they also paid up. And you know who got the money? Our farmers, our great farmers, because they were targeted. You never charged them anything. Also, I charged them 25% on dumped steel because they were killing our steel industry. We were not going to have a steel industry. Okay. You've just heard from Donald Trump and Joe Biden debating on stage in the United States in the second of the U.S. presidential debates week and a half out from the election. It's Friday and I'm joined by John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, to get their immediate thoughts on what was a much more disciplined and a much more informed debate than the previous one. John, you were watching it live. What were your, what was your takeaway from the debate and what did you think about that minor exchange, really the only exchange of substance about China and about trade? Well, overall, I thought, uh, as you said, it was much more controlled, much more well-behaved, and so they were able to make their points. Um, I didn't see either side make any major gaffes, um, and that arguably is a win for Biden because Trump needs to make up ground given what the polls suggest. Um, And so what we're left with is two very different views of the way forward for the America in general for the American economies in specific and potentially for policy towards China. Um, the exchange on China, uh, Trump is fast and loose with facts, as is his want. Um, and we should discuss the, the details of how the trade war has impacted uh, both China and the American consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe Shane, there was a, a bit of a bit of a line there from Trump about currency uh, manipulation. Of course, we remember last year when he designated China a currency manipulator, but analysts would dispute that. 
about Chinese currency. Devaluation, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the Chinese currency for the problem for Beijing now is that it's, it's rising uh, a little bit too quickly. So I think China will start to intervene. Actually, we have already seen the PBOC has moved to slow down the yuan appreciation a little bit. So uh, I'm not expecting the yuan as a currency issue to become another hot spot between the uh, China-US relationship. Uh, that said, I think one strategic um, change is very important to note is that uh, for China, it's increasingly clear that the US dollar is losing its uh, um, uh, credibility as a global anchor currency. Mm. And as we all know, the dollar has been one uh, of the three or four pillars of the uh, US hegemony in the world. And China is uh, trying to take advantage of this mm. and trying to boost the use of uh, the yuan to make the yuan a regional or even international currency. So, uh, interestingly, we see Zhou Xiaochuan, the former uh, central bank governor, said yesterday that maybe it's time for China to reconsidering its capital account control measures and uh, so that the yuan can be used more freely. So, this is a very, very interesting thing to watch uh, yeah. in the coming months or years. Can I ask you about that? Because... Um in whose eyes has the U.S. been losing dollar, been lo- losing luster? We obviously hear a lot about this, and China's. I thought it was very interesting to see the the former governor's comments um, calling for reform so that China could internationalize because China still, the yuan is, you know, half has a half of the share it did of international trade payments five years ago. So, what what is China actually doing to internationalize it? Is it is it ret- rhetorical at this point? Uh, no, I think uh, uh, if you ask like who is uh, questioning the dollar's role as a, mm. um, you know the only choice in international payment, you know you just look at the the, um, uh, the use of uh, the U.S. Treasuries. It's uh, it's a ten years. I think it's zero point seven or zero point eight. Mm. And then the, uh, we have the Fed chairman coming out very very clear uh, statements that the inflation target is two percent. Mm-hmm. So basically, the United States is saying, uh, t- telling everyone like, if you buy U.S. bonds, if you hold the U.S. assets, we're going to rip you off. Mm. And this is not a very good um, um, encouraging sign for people to hold uh, uh, U.S. dollars. And yes, for China, the biggest problem is that the yuan is not uh, freely usable. Free, yeah. For, yeah, you cannot like move money in and out of China very easily. But there are some increasing uh, channels, and these channels are getting uh, broader. And also. Uh, remember, China still has these so-called uh, middleway houses. For instance, uh, you know, in Shanghai Gold Exchange, mm-hmm. they have these contracts built uh, in in yuan, and you know, you can uh, through some efforts, you can go through the gold, and yuan will become a kind of tradable mm-hmm. uh, tradable currency. Yeah, yeah, long way to go on that front, but certainly interesting to keep watching it. Yeah. Um, just to sort of go back to Trump and Biden, um, some of the, the stats that they threw out there, um, Trump said that he has paid $28 billion to U.S. farmers and subsidies. Uh, the New York Times actually reported that it's $46 billion. Um, I calculated this week that um, imp- he also said that China is the payer of, of tariffs. Of course, we, we do know that the vast majority of tariffs are paid by the buyer, by the U.S. importer. I calculated that um, to date that has come in at $27 billion per mo- uh, over the course of 2020. Um, so, you know, these payments are both going out of, of uh, the U.S. government. At the same time, China's phase one purchases to date this year have been $56 billion. So there's a deficit there in terms of what the U.S. government's paying out to 
um, farmers, what U.S. importers are paying on tariffs, and what they're getting from the Phase One trade deal. So that wasn't a level of nuance that we got into on the on the debate, unfortunately today. Um, the next point we wanted to discuss was the data dump coming out of Beijing earlier in the week. China's gross domestic product grew by. 4.9% in the third quarter of the year, the strongest growth of any major economy in the world, uh, If, it, albeit slightly down on what analysts had expected. The message being there that analysts perhaps had been carried away by the strong growth in the second quarter, but still very strong, Joshin. What were the highlights for you from Monday's data at this point? Well, I think the headline data is already um, uh, really quite impressive. I mean, 4.9, although many people are saying, oh, it's below uh, economists' uh, estimates of 5%. I mean, for China, whether it's 4% or 5% is not important. Mm-hmm. The important thing is that the trend is confirmed. And this offers great confidence to the Chinese government and uh, maybe to President Xi Jinping himself. Remember, next week we have this big conference with his uh, Central Committee of the Communist Party, and he walked into the room. He can easily show, say, cameras, look at the, look around the world. You know, we are the best now. You know, why you have any slightest doubt about our governance and our effectiveness of uh, developing the economy? Mm. It certainly does look like a win uh, for the leadership of China, John. Uh, looking at the numbers themselves, were there any uh, key takeaways that you had? Any imbalances or or anything that you were particularly um, enthused by? Looking at the um, retail sales number, which is critically important, it's, this is consumer purchases of goods. Um, the new dual circulation strategy that Beijing has rolled out depends m- more on domestic demand. In other words, c- Chinese um, buying more, consumers spending more. And uh, Overall, retail sales rose for the second month in a row, uh, which is good. Um, and the rise in August was the first this year. And so the September rise, as Joe Shin said, is a confirmation and expansion of that. But looking at the numbers, digging into it, um, quite a bit of the rise was due to uh, purchases of luxury vehicles or other high-end goods, cosmetics, for example. Um, and so the, it shows, it underlines the uneven nature of the recovery so far in China, mm-hmm. um, is that the well-to-do who have able to uh, survive the coronavirus uh, most favorably have the money to spend to buy things like luxury cars, mm-hmm. uh, where sales of domestic vehicles, smaller vehicles, rose, but rose significantly less than these luxury cars. Uh, the same with cosmetics, the same with other categories. Uh, the question is, is the entire spectrum of consumers, the, the overall very large middle class in the China, are are they able to increase their spending? Um, and that remains to be seen. The ratio of uh, disposable purchases to income actually declined mm-hmm. uh, in the in the third quarter. And so you, it raises questions about the, the outlook for the fourth quarter. It's not to say that the Chinese economy is about to turn down, uh, far from it. But it is not as solid as the headline numbers may appear. Orange wrote a story this week uh, looking at some of these details, John, that you mentioned. Um, and he interviewed some people who had been skipping meals. They hadn't eaten out for weeks, but they were really cutting back on their budgets. And that does show the nuance of of maybe what we don't see in the headline figures. Um, just to sort of quickly, before we wrap up, turn to the um, 
the debates and the, the election, um, everybody's talking about an October su- surprise. Um, maybe Trump having the coronavirus was the tr- October surprise on that side of the pond. Um, but I know that there's been a lot of chatter about um, a possible uh, military intervention in Taiwan or invasion or uh, by the Chinese. Um, Zhu Xin, it, this week was also the 70th anniversary of China's um, getting involved in the Korean War. And I know that Xi Jinping made a speech on this front and a lot of uh, press has been given to this invocation of the the Korea spirit of Korea um, 70 years on. What, what, what are the details of that and what can we read into that for the present day? Well, thank you, Fingba. I know the presidential debate between Trump and Biden is uh, having lots of people doing it. But it really, for me, I think in terms of importance, the more speech is actually happening in Beijing. And when you're looking at the two different settings, you know, one of them are two uh, men uh, debating the country's future, seems both uh, are kind of confused about where to go. And on the other hand, in the great half of the people, you know, all these kind of communist setting, grand setting, and this power this leader has, who has never been so powerful the country has ever seen for decades and coming out with a strong message of uh, national uh, reunification. And for the takeaway of Xi Jinping's speech, I haven't read it very carefully, but it's very, very important because the tone is very strong, is nationalistic. And also, one important thing he is saying that, you know, traditionally China, just the saying, you know, uh, uh, the territory, uh, completeness, the sovereignty, the security will be some trigger for war, right? If 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 you hurt China's sovereignty, then there's a military risk. But now, uh, President Xi is including development interest into it, which means uh, the 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 threshold for strong actions from China is a little bit lower, or there are more incidents that could trigger uh, more strong reacts yeah. from from yeah. China. So the threshold for a potential um, invasion of t- Taiwan has been lowered. Uh, well, I, I want to be go that so specific. Sure. <laughs> yes. Well, Xi Jinping didn't mention United States in his speech at all, but all the, you know, apparently the U.S.-China rivalry is the elephant in the room and everyone can see this. And another thing is, another line uh, in his speech is that, you know, the Chinese people are now organized. And if anyone is going to mess around with it, you know, the, basically the, 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 the consequences will be very serious and the result will be very ugly. Yeah. Okay. Worrying times indeed. We shall hope for the best. Um, John, before we wrap up, is there anything in the week ahead that we should be keeping an eye out for? Well, at the end of uh, next week, we have the uh, PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index uh, for October, uh, which is the first indication of how the uh, first month of the fourth quarter will do. Um, The expectation is that the sentiment will keep rising, um, but we'll see. Uh, Again, the details are critical. Mm -hmm. We have manufacturing sentiment. We have construction sentiment. We have service sector sentiment. How is it all doing? How is the economy going? We'll we'll see. We will keep an eye out for that. Until then, Joshin, John Carter, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I am joined on the line now by Stephen Olson, who is a research fellow at the Heinrich Foundation and a former US government trade negotiator. Stephen is coming hot out of watching the latest presidential debate in which Joe Biden and President Donald Trump have locked horns and discussed all manner of things. Uh, Stephen, what is your overall impression of where China featured in this week's debate? First of all, I guess we can we can 
probably say that the quality of the debate was was much better this time around. I, I don't think there was any question that the second debate was significantly more uh, coherent uh, than the first debate. However, in terms of China or trade issues more broadly, uh, I don't think we really learned anything that we didn't already know. Uh, there was the one question about, quote unquote, making China uh, pay. Um, the, the general thrust of Vice Pre President Biden's response seemed to be just a vague reference to making them play by the rules. And President Trump's uh, response was uh, about the 25. China was paying 25 percent tariffs, mm -hmm. which, of course, we know are not paid by China. They're paid by U.S. importers. And then he made a reference to currency devaluation. And I frankly speaking, really didn't follow the connection to that reference to the question that was asked. Yeah, not not very coherent. Um, I was disappointed a little bit in, in Biden. Um, I, I hope we might glean something about potential future China policy from this debate or trade policy. Indeed, um, Trump tried to bait him on that. Um, and I think um, Biden w went back to his tried and tested uh, kitchen table metaphor, you know, analogy. And he, he he's obviously making an effort to try and reach out to the sort of average man and woman, on, uh, you know, in, in, in Main Street America. Um, well, I do. Finbar, I think he's actually deliberately keeping his cards close to the vest. I mean, he has not made any definitive declarations about what he would do uh, specifically on any of the trade actions taken by the Trump uh, administration. So he, he has not indicated that he's going to lift the punitive tariffs. Um, he has not uh, said anything one way or another about the phase one uh, agreement. So clearly, I think he's trying to keep his options open. And I think his performance tonight was probably consistent with that. Yeah, as somebody probably, uh, Steve, who's followed um, elections down the years, is that is that the usual opening position of a challenger? Is maybe don't go too hard on what your policies will be and maybe see what happens if you were to take office? I, I think you prefer to speak in platitudes to the extent you can get away with it because that leaves you with maximum room for maneuverability later. Yeah. Uh, just generally speaking, um, Biden did pu publish a supply chain and some economic policy guidance, guidance documents that weren't a million miles away from what Trump has also been, been pushing and doing over the past four years. Steve, what's your sense of if Biden, Biden were to be successful? Um, we didn't learn from the debate, but just generally, are we, are we, we're not really going to see a, a, a sea change from what we've seen over four years, are we? I, I think the, the style, the tone, the tenor of a Biden trade policy will, will, will differ significantly from that of the Trump administration. We're not going to see the over-the-top rhetoric. We're not going to see the unpredictable, uh, somewhat erratic uh, trade policy by Twitter approach uh, that the president has has frequently taken. But as, as you've alluded to, I think if you look at the underlying substance, there might actually be a, a fair amount of continuity. Um, Biden has made it perfectly clear that he intends, like Trump, uh, to pursue a very uh, worker-centric um, approach to, uh, uh, to U.S. trade policy. And specifically on the China relationship, uh, Vice President Biden's grievances uh, about China are largely identical 
to all the points being pursued mm -hmm. by by the Trump administration. So much so that that Trump has actually accused him of plagiarism mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to his, his trade policy. So I think anybody who was either uh, hoping for or expecting uh, a rapid uh, de-escalation in trade tensions under Biden administration uh, might find themselves a bit disappointed, at least initially. Yeah. And, you know, there are various surveys which have come out over recent weeks which show how unpopular China is with, uh, you know, in, in America among, among the citizens. Um, do you think that in that regard, that's why we're not seeing um, any great break in the debate? Um, maybe Biden doesn't want to be seen to be falling into line with Trump's policies. Is that why he's sort of keen to steer away from uh, any concrete uh, confirmation of what he might do on China? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a combination of that. I think it's a combination of wanting to keep his options open. And at the same time, you know, look, let's face it, the, the only issue in Washington, D.C. That, that Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives can agree on um, is that it's time to reset the trade relationship uh, with China. And so the dynamic we've seen playing out in the campaign that both candidates have a tr tried to position their opponent as being soft on China and position themselves as taking a much uh, much harder line. Yeah. yeah. Steve, Steve, your background is at USTR. Um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's an apolitical organization by design. Um, uh, you know, and, and and you and I have sort of discussed uh, very recently, like um, who, what what might happen with the next USTR and so on. But um, even if that's not a, a China expert or or somebody who has great experience in negotiating with China, you, the, the staff is very well um, skilled in this sort of area. So do you expect that whoever takes the job next, it'll be more leaning on their staff for China expertise rather than perhaps being a China wonk themselves? Well, I think look, a certain amount of China uh, of China expertise would would certainly be an asset, but but I don't think it's a, it's a prerequisite uh, exactly for the reason that you said. I mean, throughout the the, the U.S. trade bureaucracy, there's there's tremendous uh, China expertise, and there wouldn't be any need for the person in the top slot uh, to kind of replicate mm -hmm. that. Yeah. This this person will be well prepped and and well staffed. That's that's for sure. I, the point I'd also make, though, is if, if you do go ahead and point somebody, you know, who in appearance or reality is a quote unquote China appointee, then that sort of is uh, implicitly uh, downgrades the relative importance of the trade relationship yeah. with the European Union, with Japan, with other key trade partners. Um, I really think uh, the, the more important thing uh, would be for the individual to have a certain amount of gravitas mm -hmm. within the administration uh, so that the different trade partners he or she deals with understands that this, this individual truly is speaking on behalf of the United States. Absolutely. Um, Steve, you are based over this side of the world and I'm sure you engage with individuals in, in China, academics and, and trade experts and otherwise uh, on a regular basis. Um, what do you think China wants from this election? Um, you know, who, who would be a favourable victor in the eyes of Beijing? Well, look, the, the, the conventional wisdom and, and certainly the viewpoint of the U.S. intelligence community is that um, Beijing would prefer Biden. Um, frankly speaking, however, I'm, I'm not sure that that is correct. Um, Biden will do two things uh, that Trump will not. Number one, he will place a much higher priority on human rights issues. 
And I think it's almost inevitable that those issues will spill over onto and complicate um, the, 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 trade, um, uh, the trade agenda. Number two, Biden is a firm believer in the power and the benefit of working through alliances. So he would certainly, you know, reach out to the European Union, Japan, Australia, other like-minded countries, and, re and really provide uh, Beijing with much more of a, of a united front. Ultimately, um, uh, the calculation in Beijing might be that they prefer the go-it-alone approach of Donald Trump. Indeed. Well, we shall see. We're about a week and a half out from the election at this point. We're, we're, we're really waiting to see what happens there. But Steve, thanks a million for joining us. We catch up with you on the other side and take care for now. Very good. My pleasure, Finbar. Thank you. And now to Geneva and the race to become the next Director General of the World Trade Organization. Regular listeners will have heard over the past few months interviews with candidates to lead the WTO conducted over the course of a rather fiery and highly politicised campaign. Now the race is down to two. And following last week's episode, when you heard from Yim Young-hee, the Korean candidate, this week we're going to give you the highlights from an interview I did with the Nigerian candidate Ngozi Okonja-Owela on, on August 13th. Dr Okonja-Owela is considered by many as the favourite to take the Geneva hot seat next month. There's plenty of appetite for a first African Director General and, of course, whoever wins will be the first female leader. She comes with real diplomatic multilateral pedigree, having twice served as Nigerian finance minister and spent many years in senior roles at the World Bank. Currently, she is the board chair for the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation. But one of the major criticisms to have been angled at her campaign is that she doesn't have formal trade experience. Unlike Minister Yu, Dr. Okonja Owela has not directly led multilateral or bilateral talks nor directly negotiated trade deals. Is this a problem? Well, her campaign thinks not and has tried to paint her as the outsider who is needed to shake things up at a WTO which has become toothless and dysfunctional in recent years. But critics say you can't be expected to reform the WTO without having lived and breathed the issues. There's also some suspicion that years at the World Bank and being the possessor of a US passport won't endear her to the Chinese delegation. But it's all about consensus in this game, so we shall see. She's fought off stiff competition from two other African candidates, including the very heavily fancied Kenyan Amina Mohammed, to get to this stage. And we were very pleased to have a Zoom call with her back in August to discuss her plans for reform. First off, I asked her about how the WTO can help in resolving the US-China trade war. I think the issue is, is uh, the issue of trust between the members, be it the bigger powers, US, China, or, uh, or developed and developing countries. And I think as long as you have that, the divide, uh, you know, you have this divide. So the question to ask is, how did this happen? But more importantly, how can you rebuild the trust so you can begin to bridge uh, the divide? Um, so I think that uh, uh, as DG, um, I want to look at things in a slightly different fashion. And, and that is to look at where there may be uh, commonalities or areas of agreement. You know, everybody is looking at the Gulf and how big it is and how distant 
members are from one another. But in some instances, they're actually doing things together. And that's what is promising. My approach would be to look for those positive areas, to build on it, you know, and to build incrementally to build trust. Building trust is not something you talk about. You have to build confidence. And that actually means doing certain things concretely. And I think that's what's needed to say, what are the areas the U.S. and China actually are doing something in common? How can we make that succeed? And therefore, how can that build further trust uh, for them to do more and build up incrementally? So specifically, even though people talk of this U.S.-China divide, for the WTO, U.S. and China are both parties to the fisheries, ongoing fisheries subsidies negotiations right now. They are still around the same table. And, and, you know, both of them have an interest in seeing this multilateral negotiations, which is one of the few since uh, the WTO started. They have an interest in seeing it succeed. So that's what I mean concretely, that were I to become DG, this would be a top priority for me to see how this can have an outcome that is positive so that when you get to the ministerial in June, this is something that can be put on the table uh, to concretely, not negotiating anymore, but implement, talking about how to implement. Do you add the, this to existing schedules? Do you have a new agreement? How do we move forward on implementation so the WTO can come out with something positive that can say to the world, the WTO has turned the corner, it's doing something positive. And by the way, all the members, even those who seemingly have problems, uh, are party to this. So do you see that as a gateway, something to build on, or do you see the fisheries agreement and stuff like that as a means to an end in themselves? Both. It's good to have a fisheries subsidies agreement because it delivers two things. Uh, it, re- it will renew our fishing stocks in our oceans, and by the way, it will deliver biodiversity and sustainability. So for that, it's an end in itself, SDG 14.6. But it's also a means to an end for me. And then, and the means is to show that the WTO can actually get all members around something positive and deliver it. So I also see it as a way of moving. Once you've got that, you know, it does make a difference when you put a win on the table, as well as a disagreement on the table. And so for me, top priority as a DG coming in would be to get a successful uh, uh, MC12 with a successful fisheries outcome. Then from there, you can go to tackle some other issues. Let's take the dispute uh, resolution system, which is a big one. Uh, uh, You know, not having one that works damages the credibility of the WTO. So it is one of the urgent things to tackle. But there's one interesting thing. I think all parties want a dispute resolution mechanism or system. They do. The U.S. wants it. China wants it. The EU wants it. Every member wants it. And to me, that's already a beginning, that there's something they all want in common. So they want it in different ways. The U.S. may be thinking, you know, let's go back to the GATS one panel system or, you know, uh, the, the China and the others may be saying, you know, we also like the two-tier system and the appellate body, but they all want it. And to me, that's a big signal that this is something that can be done and we'll do it. So you would then find ways to look at what is it that really the dissent that the U.S., for instance, has. Let's take each item by item and see if we can solve it. 
and if we can come to a resolution. That's the way I would go about it. But you see, what I'm doing is not coming in and saying, no, disaster, everything, they don't agree on anything. I'm doing the opposite. That's the mindset with which I came to this job. I'm coming to the job. And I'm saying, where do they actually agree on something? And therefore, how can we build on it? And that's the way I'm going to approach us, DGWCO. So the message you're getting out here, if I'm right, is rather than looking for a saviour of the WTO, people should be managing their expectations. We shouldn't really expect a revolution. I mean, you can expect changes. I don't like to use the word revolution. Let me tell you what I think. I think that, look, the WTO is at a juncture where it needs leadership. That is what it needs. And it needs someone with experience. It needs managerial acumen. It needs a reformer and someone willing to be bold and take on issues. Now, you need that. You need a leader. It doesn't need a technical negotiating uh, uh, person because you've got plenty of them and the problems are still there. So I think you need a leader who will take on these problems. But the methodology by which the problems are solved, each one, may be different. So you can't have, there's no one approach to any of these issues because you've got to plumb deep, deeper and find out what is the problem, you know, and then try to approach it. But there's one thing, my style will be completely different by looking at the positives and building on the positives. Sometimes that may yield you a big change. At other times it may mean incremental change that will lead you to the answer. So that there's no one methodology. For instance, the issue of COVID-19, right? This is an issue that at the ministerial, I would really be looking to put down for WTO to seize it as an opportunity to put down markers to solve a problem that the world is confronting right now. And maybe I'm saying it because I'm the only candidate who is working in the vaccine pillar. I'm, I'm a WHO envoy, I'm a AU envoy, to, to both COVID-19, and we are working on this ACT tools accelerator, the international effort to try and get, accelerate the availability of therapeutics, diagnostics, and vaccines. And as chair of Gavi, I'm particularly involved in the vaccines pillar. Mm-hmm. And we are looking at maybe one vaccines, maybe several, but the key issue we're trying to solve there is how do we get these vaccines in a way that poorer countries are not standing behind? Mm-hmm. but that there can be access based on some allocation criteria. But that also speaks to trade and the rules, because at the end of the day, moving vaccines is also trading them. You know, what are the rules that govern that? 90 countries also have export restrictions right now, medical supplies and equipment, even on food, because of fear of what COVID will bring. How does the WTO respond to that? Are countries responding to the rules that it has in this respect? The articles in the GATT, the TRIPS, I think is Article 27, the GATT, Mm -hmm. I I can look up the articles 11 or 12. You know, there are specific articles governing this. Are they being applied? Did countries notify? Are the restrictions temporary, transparent, and, and and, uh, and proportionate? If not, how does the WTO enforce those rules among its yeah. members? So, does it need new rules? Well, I think most people will probably agree that the global trading system should be a force for preventing and, and handling coronavirus. Uh, so do you think that the WTO under current administration is lacking this sort of leadership? I mean, why hasn't the WTO be front, been front and centre during the pandemic with vaccinations, PPE, medicines and all that stuff? 
Well, I cannot comment on the leadership of the person leading, and I'll be very honest about that. I don't think it's right. I don't think okay. it's my place to comment on that, so I will not. Because if I were there, I wouldn't want people to, you know, if you're coming in, focus on what you are going to do. I'm just telling you that the challenges I, I see now will not be solved by the status quo. It will not be solved by more of the same. It will not be solved by business as usual. It has to be an unusual DG that is coming. And that's what I'm offering. I'm saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm unusual in the sense that I am somebody who combines trade with economic knowledge. I'm a, I'm a development economist. And you know, you cannot do that. 30 years of my career. But trade is an instrument within the development economics arsenal to achieve something, which is to enrich the lives of people. So this is what you do. Um, but you need to place it in the larger context of development and, and understand that. So you need someone who can take on these issues in, in a bolder fashion. You need a DG. The DG has no direct power, but the DG has what I call soft power. And that soft power can be exercised proactively to help solve problems. Mm -hmm. And that's linked to what I mean by leadership. So certainly there are problems you can take a leading role in to solve. And I can give you specific, some specific examples of some things that the DG could do, uh, you know, to support members to move things uh, along and, mm -hmm. and, and, and make it work better. I wonder on the campaign trail, how has this sort of thing gone down? Have you gotten a sense that ambassadors and delegations are hungry for the sort of reform you're describing? I sense a lot of appetite. I really do. When I speak to ministers, I think I sense even more appetite from their part. And, and if the WTO does not, uh, something doesn't happen to change it, I think that will be very sad because I sense enormous appetite. This is the moment where it is, you can't have more of the same. You, 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 and I come back to it. I'm somebody who is different. I, I come with a pair of fresh eyes. I come, with a, 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 I come with a CV that shows I've done reform. I've actually written two books about it. Mm -hmm. And those reforms were bold. Uh, you know, they, they were courageous, if you allow me to say so. In one case, my mother was kidnapped and I still went, kept going when we were doing reforms on corruption. So I'm not someone who is talking about it. So when I talk, I sense appetite for this. But I think they are looking for someone who can do it. And I'm praying they will make the right choice mm. and they will not choose more of the same or what they've had before, because that will not solve WTO's problems. Of course, there, there are plenty of vested interests at the WTO. Perhaps many, perhaps not all of the members want to have reform. Are you happy enough to plow on with this agenda regardless and to ruffle a few feathers in the process if need be? I, I'm, I'm, you know, my track record is not being afraid to take on challenges. You can check it any which way you want. And I think that's what WTO needs now. And you can take on these challenges, you can fight vested interests and still get things done. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, vested interests will come to respect what you're trying to do because you're trying to deliver for the better good. Or if they don't respect it, they can stand to the side and let you get on with what needs to, to, to be done. I think what I'm saying is that the majority of members seem to want this difference. And that's why I am hopeful that they will choose the difference mm -hmm. uh, because they want change. 
you know, uh, it may not be revolution, but definitely it is reform. It is a different way of moving the WTO forward. It cannot continue the paralysis that you see or the dysfunction that people, these are all words used by people. And to me, it's horrifying because when I started as a development economist at the World Bank over my career, the WTO was regarded with the utmost, um, what should I say, respect, but also as a top multilateral. But what are the words that you hear about WTO now? Dysfunction, paralyzed, doesn't do anything, irrelevant. I mean, I even had one, one TV uh, uh, and radio anchor ask me, why are you even applying for this job for an organization which is irrelevant? And I was really taken aback. That was like, I'm, and I'm like, what? It's not irrelevant. That's why I'm applying. It's very relevant. But, you know, I find that very distressing because, if, as I said in my speech to the general counsel, if the WTO did not exist, you would have to invent it because we need some, some organization that can underpin the trading system mm -hmm. in a predictable and stable way. And developing countries need it even the most. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's being described in this way must change. Yeah. It must, and that, that may be the revolution. That may be the revolution. The fact that we change this image, we stop this dysfunction, that is my objective, that's my vision. If I get to this job, that's what I'm going to deliver. It will be that within two years of my being there, this WTO, the image will change because it will be doing things and delivering things. And I'll tell you one, on e-commerce, we have a plurilateral negotiation ongoing right now. But the digital economy is so important. So this pandemic, it was already a trend. The pandemic has really accelerated it. And we know that that's going to be the wave of the future. But the rules to underpin this are not yet in place. So it's like, let's hurry. But even in the plurilateral, you know, not all members are taking part. And you listen to the members, a lot of developing countries uh, are not taking part in it for, for several reasons. One, some of them said, this is, if I go and take part, I don't even have the infrastructure. That's the famous digital divide. I don't have the regulatory framework within which to govern this. I don't have the resources to put it in place. If I go there and start making commitments with this asymmetry of knowledge, I may end up with how come I did this. So why can't we tackle that? To tackle that, you need to actually invoke the Marrakesh decision, which said, you know, to bring WTO should work with other multilaterals to try and solve problems. And that's why I think WTO needs someone who sees the WTO issues also in a larger context, because that's how I see it. I would pull in the Asian Infrastructure Bank, the World Bank Group, African Development Bank. With all, these are all my colleagues. We would sit down and we would say, what do we need to do? The WTO is not a funding agency, so they can bring resources. They can bring expertise, and WTO can add what it has from the aid to trade and so on. And we can show these countries, here's a package to help you deal with this problem. So can you join now? And that might build the confidence for them to join. That's a proactive DG. Move on to subsidies. Some influential WTO members have serious concerns about industrial subsidies, particularly with regard to China. Uh, while there are developing members, of course, who would point to the agricultural subsidies that are in the US and the European Union. Is this something that you would try to propose um, reform on in the first few months if you were to be successful in getting the job? 
I think that the subsidies issue is one of the most challenging and one of the most divisive. And I think this will need much more work. Whereas I see quickly some victories in things like COVID-19 that can make the WTO look good and seize an opportunity. Whereas I even see it in the dispute settlement system, believe it or not, in subsidies, it's fraught. I think that as an incoming, I would, you see the thing with subsidies is that there are members have drawn red lines, they've made linkages. So my approach would be to say, let's put all issues. Maybe we start with uh, domestic, let me just use agricultural subsidies, for instance, where the developing countries feel that, you know, the aggregate measurement of, uh, of uh, support beyond the minimum should be eliminated because it gives an undue advantage. But developed countries are pointing to Article 6.2 and saying, well, you know, you have uh, the ad advantage of being able to subsidize your resource poor farmers. And even those, uh, 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 um, you know, even big economies, you know, if, if you apply the percentage they have to their agriculture, it's so large now that you're also talking of large numbers. So you have this back and forth. And then this one says, I really don't want to talk about it unless... This happens. And so I would say, let's put all issues mm -hmm. of domestic support on agriculture on the table. Let's start afresh and look at these issues. No red lines, no linkages, so that we can look at it. I'm just taking one set. Now, yeah. that approach will take time. It will take a work program. So what I would like to see is, you know, let's try to develop a work program in this area. I don't think it's anything that one can deliver anytime soon. Yeah. Because one of the things that is hardest in life is once you have an acquis, you know, getting people away from it is very, very difficult. But because we need to make some progress on these issues, I think that, you know, a work program that can generate at least a dialogue, uh, um, you know, that is constructive would be a good way to begin. That's what I've tried to deliver uh, if I comment on that issue. But that is not going to be an issue that one can solve in any quick time. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this bumper edition of the US-China Trade War update from the South China Morning Post. I've been Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk. You can keep up with our team's updates on Twitter at SCMP Economy. You can follow me at F Birmingham. That's Birmingham with a B-E-R, not like the city. Keep abreast of all of our stories about the WTO, about the election, about US-China trade at SCMP.com. We'll be back with another edition next week. Until then, wherever you are, stay safe wash your hands, wear your mask, and keep your distance. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.